Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. This is actually a pretty original topic, I think, that I'm bringing to you guys. Not necessarily original. We've talked about consciousness and meditation before, but it's a new spin on it. And if you're a person that likes to solve puzzles, I think you might enjoy this conversation. So I am hoping during this podcast that you are going to hear an amazing truth that for the right unsuspecting person at the right unpredictable moment, it sparks genuine awakening. Now, I've had to say that a couple of times here. Thank God we have edited that. But that was something that I had learned in my guest's book. And my guest today is Dean Slider. I had the chance to review this book, The Dharma's Bun Guide to Western Literature. So if you're watching this on Path 11 TV, you could take a look at the book that I'm holding up right now. And Dean has led meditation workshops and retreats throughout the U.S. since 1970 at venues ranging from Ivy League colleges to maximum security prisons. And maybe we'll get a chance to hear about that. I think my uh, guest has been in prison or jail before himself in the 60s there. And for 33 years, he taught English. And I am going to bring him on because he had one of those moments when he was 12 years old that blew the top of his head off yeah. by just, I think it was three words, right, Dean? What right. me worry? Right. And it was off of a mad magazine. So, Dean, welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Hannah. It's great to be here. Yeah. Okay. So... Now that I've gotten all of my little tries out of the way and trying to start this podcast, I would love for you to give my listeners just a little bit of background on your teaching history. It sounds like you were a little bit of a free spirit back in the 60s, traveling, living very simply. Mm -hmm. I also recently picked up and read uh, the Tao Te Ching recently. So mm -hmm. when you kind of had that in your backpack and were kind of taken off in the world, I just thought it'd be fun for our listeners to get a little bit of a feel for you and who you are and right. um, go for it. Right. So as, as you've already indicated, started to have some sort of spontaneous experiences of, we could say, spiritual opening as early as 11 years old or 12 years old. The most dramatic one was the one you mentioned where my mind was churning away, just full of anxiety. <clears throat> and I happened to pick up a mad magazine and there's grinning Alfred E. Newman and his motto, what me worry. And all of a sudden I saw that, oh, all this churning that's going on that's got a name that's called worry and i've been doing it it doesn't happen to me i've been choosing to do it it's like i've been going gee why is this engine racing and then i realized oh because my foot's been on the the accelerator and it's like oh there's my foot take that foot off the accelerator and my mind just went deliciously expansively silent and as you you described it really was kind of like the top of my head coming off and just sort of my 
isness, my being sort of melting into the skies. You know, to describe it in words like that, it sounds very woo-woo, I guess, but it really is just, oh, yeah, this is, it It makes sense that you, to not just go through life as a little constricted wave, but to find out, oh, there's no separation between wave and ocean, so to speak. So that stuff started happening to me early on. I got up to San Francisco State College for my freshman year in 1966-67. And then there I was. It was San Francisco. It was June of 1967. Those of you who know a little something about recent cultural history know that was the famous Summer of Love. And that was the end of college for me for a while. So <clears throat> basically, I just kind of was a hippie, dropout, do-it-yourself holy man hitchhiking around the country with the Tao Te Ching and Thoreau's Walden in my little backpack. And yeah, it was great. It was a time when the first big influx of teachers from the East was coming in. And so I was able to sample around and, you know, sit Zen at the San Francisco Zen Center and, you know, meet Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and meet Swami Bhaktivedanta and Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach, who led this band of joyous Hasidim and Sufi Sam and, and all these, these great, you know, wonderful characters that were all just kind of you know, on fire with, you know, the fact that life is not just one damn thing after another. It's not just a bunch of little, you know, just kind of drifting through space and time, trying not to get hurt too much and then we die. But really it's about reclaiming this this expansiveness, this this boundless beingness that we are at our core. So, you know, sooner or later I had to make a living. I was interested in being married and, and having kids. And so I got a job at, at a very fancy prep school in New Jersey where I taught English for 33 years. And pretty soon I was also running meditation programs there. I had this love course for juniors and seniors called Literature of Enlightenment. And everyone knew my classroom. They'd walk past my classroom and instead of having the rows of, you know, uncomfortable desk chairs that had a a circle of comfy couches for doing our lab work, which was meditation. And here I was in this very, you know, traditional New Jersey prep school. Like, you know, all the other teachers in the blue blazers and, you know, it's kind of a Republican country club setting. And I was kind of the, the subversive hippie there bringing this, this new element in. But I stuck around long enough, you know, after 33 years, you finally go from dangerous radical to kind of, you know, Mr. Chips, who was the, the kindly old teacher who's helped change some people's lives. So, so that was great. And while that was going on, because I, would, I was still pursuing my own meditation career and hanging out with some of these, you know, yogis and rishis, but also every year I was coming back and teaching Huckleberry Finn again and you know, teaching the great Gatsby again. Emily Dickinson, Walt Whitman. And so my perspective on them kept getting deeper and deeper. I'm coming back from, you know, deeper meditation experience, bringing it to bear. And after a while, I realized, oh, I've got to write a book of this stuff. I've got to put, I'm seeing stuff about Huckleberry Finn and the Great Gatsby that I haven't read anywhere else. I don't think anyone else has seen this stuff. So I put it all in here. Yeah, and, and that's why I had said to our listeners, if you like to figure out puzzles or like to find out hidden messages, that's what I really loved about your book and looking at the connection between you. You were basically translating for us 
you know, how we can find spirituality and consciousness and these writers, prolific writers and poets are weaving that into their writings. Mm -hmm. But it sounds to me like when you were moving deeper into your own consciousness studies, your consciousness opened up to be able to see it very differently. Yeah. The, the fact that it was, it, it was the, those two things, you know, anyone who practices meditation regularly, you know, you, you, you go into that place of just being where you, you percolate down between doing and thinking and feeling to just being, everything gets quiet and you come back with more clarity for whatever you, you're doing, whatever you bring it to bear on, if you bring it to bear on flipping real estate or or raising children or playing piano, whatever, you're, you're going to do it with more clarity and more kind of radiance coming to it. In my case, it ha I happened to be teaching literature. So, you know, it was kind of inevitable that those things got, got put together. So, for example, in Huckleberry Finn, you know, early in the book, through the whole book, Huck and, and Jim, the runaway slave, they're looking for freedom. Looking for freedom. Well, looking for freedom, that's the, that's the central theme of, of the spiritual life. It, it, in, in the Hindu, Indian philosophy, they call it moksha, liberation, where we're liberated from the constrictions that make us feel like a little wave instead of an ocean. So he's running away. On one shore is the, the widow Douglas who is this very genteel Christian lady who's adopted him and she's convinced she's going to civilize him. But every time, you know, Huck, who's narrating the book, every time he says civilize, he spells it with an S. And every time we see that S, we know, uh-uh, that's never going to happen. <laughs> and she's got him wearing starchy clothes and, you know, having to say prayers over the meals and go to school and all that. So that side, things are too stiff. Then his pap, who's this horrible, brutal alcoholic, comes and takes him away and kidnaps him and takes him to the other side of the river where they're in this little cabin and, and, and pap almost kills him. And so their things are too loose. It's too chaotic. So what does he do? He gets on the river, goes down the middle. Now that is, that's the Buddha's teachings, right? not too tight. There's actually a story where a, a guy comes to the, the Buddha and says, tell me how to meditate. Tell me how to live my life. And the Buddha says, what do you do? He says, I'm a musician. I play, I think he played the vena, a stringed instrument, like a violin. And the Buddha asks him, well, when you tune your instrument, do you make the strings as tight as possible? And he says, no, 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 that's not good. Then do you make them as loose as possible? No, no. So there's this place between tight and loose. This, this, you know, golden middle way, that's where it is. So that's, that's where Huck and Jim are when they get on their raft and they go down the river. Yeah. And then I just kept seeing one thing after another like that. Yeah. And, you know, like what I hear in that too is finding the middle, uh, the middle ground of when you come into like your spiritual awakening and kind of feeling that bliss, but still here on earth. And still yes. needing to live here. It's like being of both worlds. Yes. Know? Yes. That, that's exactly right. You know, people hear the middle path. And I talk about this in the book and they often think, oh, that means being lukewarm, being some kind of boring compromise. But that's not what it is at all. You know, the, when you're on the, the middle path, you're in the river. That is qualitatively completely different from the rocks and the mud on the shores that it's a it's flow 
It's mm-hmm. flow. And when you find that place, as you say, where you're, you're connected to, to the, the, the bliss of beingness, but you're, you've got your feet firmly on the earth and you find how to integrate those. That's, that's the flow. That's what symbolized, you know, over my shoulder there is, is a figure of, of Lord Ganesh with a human body and an elephant's head. That's not there because I'm expecting some guy with an elephant's head to walk through my door. These are all symbolic representations of what we look like when we're awakened, mm-hmm. right? And the elephant is the, the animal with the, it's the biggest animal, the biggest land animal. So the elephant represents the vastness, the infinite. It's a symbol of what in Indian philosophy is called Brahman, the boundless, and what I've been calling the ocean. So having the human body and the elephant's head symbolizes exactly what you were talking about, having your feet on the ground, being here in the world of time and space, but your, your head, your consciousness is expanded to the, the, the timeless, the spaceless. Hmm. I love to reading a chapter on the cat in the hat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you were kind of looking at the illustration of the cat and the way that it kind of had the smile and the thumbs, the way that the thumbs were positioned. Mm-hmm. But then you also went into, and I had never heard of this before because I haven't studied the culture as in depth nearly as you have, but the colors of the red and the white of the hat. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could kind of go into that a little bit because that also correlated with the red and white colors was it with buddhism um yeah it's in the in the yogic teachings yogic teachings in the in the yogic teachings were kind which are kind of held in common in 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 historically in the hindu world and and the buddhist world really the yogic teachings are are a practice path and it's not just about you know in america yoga is often understood to be Okay, I'm gonna, you know, master these postures and, you know, firm up my butt or something. That's there's that level of it, but that's the the most superficial level of it. And and in the yogic teachings, there's this idea of of energy streams, the what's called the Ida and the Pingala, which are one is the pass more kind of passive, cool energy, and the other is the more aggressive energy. It's like the lunar and solar sometimes symbolize that way, symbolizes white and red. And they're connected in yogic practices actually with the breath streams through the two nostrils. The, the stream through the left nostril is cooling and through the right nostril is warming. Actually, but way back when I started teaching at that New Jersey prep school, the Pingree School, for a couple of years, they made me an assistant winter track coach and I, I had to stand out there in the middle of the track. The kids were warm. They were running around. I was freezing. And, and so I would stand there and very casually just close my left nostril. So I was breathing through the right nostril, which is the warming breath. And sometimes the kids would ask me, what are you doing? And I would show them, oh yeah, and that works. So the, so the cat's hat is alternate red and white stripes which indicates an integration of the two, but it's three red stripes, two white stripes. So it's not exactly, it's a little more preponderance to the red, which for those of us who don't live in caves or ashrams, we have to be out here in the active world. That's about the right mix, about three to two. Mm -hmm. Well, and in a numerology, it's interesting you mentioned the word freedom. I learned from a new numerologist that the number five carries the energy of freedom. So mm-hmm. 
Interesting. Three strikes. And I remember you writing in the book. Now, you know, did the person illustrating this have an idea? Were they thinking of this? No, probably not at all. But, you know, when, like you said, when you begin to look into things and see them deeper and try to apply meaning to it, it's auspicious and very interesting, you know. Yeah, look, look, as I as I say in the book, asking the artist what's there in the art is like asking the chicken about the mineral content of the egg that it lays. Right. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you, you, you know, and I know this as a writer myself and as an amateur musician, when you're in your, really in the flow, you're not thinking. Stuff is coming, you know, and you go back. I just this morning reread a, a chapter for something new I'm working on that, that I had been, you know, wrote the other day and I rewrote it and went, Oh, wait, where'd that, did I write that? Where did that come from? <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause you move into that space. Like you said, yeah. a flow. Speaking of musician, I had to highlight this cause I didn't know this either. And I shared this with my husband. It was, let me see, go to my tab here of William Blake mm. and where the doors got their oh, name. Oh yes. The doors got their name. Can you talk about that? Can you share yes. about that? The doors of perception here? Yes. So William Blake is, is my first chapter who, who is just the incredible visionary poet. This was a guy who at the age of four was seeing God leaning his forehead against the bedroom window. All right. And, and he wrote and, and, and it, it did these wonderful pictures and poetry integrated together in these little beautiful handmade books that he and his wife made. And what's great is that his writing is so visionary, but the language is so simple. It's so clear. You can't miss it. So he said, if the doors of perception were cleansed, we would see everything as it is infinite, mm -hmm. right? If the doors of perception, the fact that everything looks to us like a bunch of little disconnected waves, and here's a Dean wave over here and a Hannah wave over here and a microphone wave. The fact that we're seeing that instead of just saying, oh, it's just an ocean arising in all these waves and playfully waving at itself. The fact that we don't see that is just there's some, there's, you know, it's like we, we need to spritz our windshields that with the doors of perception need to be cleansed. And Aldous Huxley in the 20th century, when he, in the 1950s, early 50s, he was one of the pioneers in experimentation with, with psychedelics. And he wrote a book about his experiences called The Doors of Perception which borrowed that line from William Blake. And then a band that started about a mile from where I live, right? I'm in Santa Monica. They're over there in Venice. Jim Morrison and, and, and his buddies, they borrowed that line from Aldous Huxley and they called their band The Doors. So cool. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Now, staying on William Blake. So for those of you who are watching on Path 11 TV, this is going to be good because you're going to be able to see the picture that I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. So this was the, the cover of chapter one. And then you kind of talked about his writing, but also shared another picture, which he drew, which kind of seems to be this enlightened being with light coming out all around him. And the face does look pretty similar. But when I got towards the end of the book about the Star Spangled Banner and reading your interpretation on that, and you had talked about the Statue Lady Liberty, the Statue of Liberty and her crown, Mm -hmm. That made me also think of, you know, with the rays coming up and out, bringing it all the way back to the very first picture of William Blake in here, 
and being illuminated. Thank you. Now, see, there's an example of what we were talking about. I didn't make that connection. You saw that. I didn't see that. That Did I put that there? I, it, somehow it got there. But isn't that what, you know, we're so used to seeing that image of Lady Liberty and kind of, oh, it's his spikes or something coming out of her head. Those are not spikes. That's rays of light. That's illumination. She's got, you know, her crown chakra is, is open. And, and the name of that statue, as I mentioned, it's called Liberty Enlightening the World. Right. Liberty Enlightening the World. Mm-hmm. And, and again, to connecting this back to the literature, when I write about Emily Dickinson, you know, Emily Dickinson wrote in a, in a letter to a friend, when I feel as if, when I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry, right? So that's what poetry is supposed to do. Not just some pretty, you know, decorative rhyming stuff. It's supposed to blow your mind. Yeah. It's supposed to open your head up to, to, to the boundlessness. Yeah, and that's what I think, you know, good poetry does too. It allows the reader to be the interpreter, you know? And like you said, you didn't make that connection. I made this connection and just yeah. looking at things you know, everyone can perceive it very differently. It can make yep. each individual feel something different. Yeah. But you also made me take a look at the at the flag differently of the national anthem, Oh Say Can You See, and relating that back to the repeatedly asked question in Dharma, you know, yeah. can we truly see? So I was hoping you could talk about yeah. that. Yeah. Oh say it's the same the same issue that, that Blake raises, the, the doors of perception being cleansed. Oh say, can you see? Right. We, we, we hear this stuff so many times. It's so familiar that we don't hear it. Right. <laughs> oh, say, can you hear? <laughs> oh, say, can you see? Right. Do you see what's going? Also, I make the point. People mishear the Star Spangled Banner. They think of it as a march, a triumphant march, like we're marching off to victory. Right. It's not a march. It's a waltz. It's in three-quarter time. One, two, three, one, two. Oh, say can you, one, two, three, dawn's early, one, two. That's a waltz. Now, waltz, you know, when you march, you're going, okay, we're going to go from here to here. We know where we're going. We're going to march over there and, you know, conquer that territory or whatever it is. Left, right, left, right. When you're waltzing, you're whirling. It's a more female kind of energy. And you're whirling around in these graceful circles and you don't know where you're going to wind up. Mm. Right now that, that anthem, that's the, 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 you know, that's like the, 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 the national mantra of, of our country. That's where we really are. We keep trying to be that other thing. We keep trying to be, you know, GI Joe and, but, but we're really you know, Cinderella at the ball or something. And, and it's also people think of the national anthem as assertive. It's not assertive. It doesn't end with a period or an exclamation mark. It ends with a question mark. Mm -hmm. This, it's an eternal question that we have to ask in, in every generation, which is, oh, say, does that star spangled banner yet wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave, you know, is our commitment to this being land of freedom, of liberation, of moksha, is that, is, is that still there? Yeah, interesting. You know, I've got, I've, I've got the, I've got very happy to have a, an endorsement on the cover of the book from Ken Burns, the great documentarist, and who I 
I I know him actually through my wife. My wife is a is a documentary filmmaker, and and she worked with Ken. And uh, he recently had a wonderful two part film on on PBS on Benjamin Franklin. And he, uh, you know, there's the great story after the Constitutional Convention, and the people are the the men who've who've written the Constitution are walking out, and one woman says, asks Franklin, "Well, Doctor Franklin, what do we have? Is it a monarchy or a republic?" And he says, a republic if you can keep it. <laughs> and I'd heard that before, but I kind of really heard it. And I sent an email to Ken. I said, that is so moving. That's like our national koan. That's the perpetual question. Can we keep it? And, you know, it's, it's I don't want to get into a lot of politics at the moment, but it's, you know, clearly that's a very, you know, acutely alive question for us right now. Yeah. Well, and also just kind of going back to the Star Spangled Banner and your connection to it being a waltz and more of a circle, mm-hmm. you know, the image that flashed in my mind, you know, birth, death, rebirth, mm-hmm. you know, really like the cycle of life. Mm-hmm. And when you're also talking about the flag in your book too, the stripes and the stars, that reminded me of the saying, you know, as above, so below, you know, looking at the, the stars in the sky and... Mm-hmm you know, the stripes kind of being more of the land. And again, there we are in the middle, <laughs> in the middle of, of right. both of those. Right. And the, and the red and white stripes on the flag are like the red and white stripes on, on the hat. On yeah. The hat. hat. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. Meditation is easy. You had said, let me go to this little sticky that I have here. And this was kind of more in the beginning. And I love the fact that how, how you described your classroom, because I would like, that would be my type of teacher, you know, I don't know how you got couches in there, but that's pretty cool. And, you know, you talk about how meditation. I'll tell you how I did it. Yeah. All right. How did you do it? I didn't ask anyone. (laughs) I just just did it. it. (laughs) What do they say? There's a, there's a saying, it's better, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it sounds like I'm sure all the kids love to be there. And, you know, I loved your the way that you looked at it. You said for 33 years, I got paid to sit around reading books and talking about them to intelligent people, you know, younger people. So you you talk about meditation also being very easy and you said, you know, 15 year olds can do it. It's not a hard thing. And I'm curious, when you were going into the prisons, were you teaching meditation or were you kind of introducing them more to the literature? What were you doing? No, no, I, I, I teaching. Me- Technically, I went in as a Buddhist chaplain, a volunteer Buddhist chaplain. And, you know, I mean, I te- can teach from a Buddhist point of view, Hindu point of view, Christian point of view secular point of view. I mean, to me, I, as a friend of mine said, I, I honor truth wherever I can find it. I need it. I need all the truth I can get. So, so I'm, I'm kind of spiritually promiscuous. So I said, so they, they needed, this is Northern State Prison in Newark, New Jersey. It's considered the, the worst prison in New Jersey. And they needed a, a Buddhist chaplain. So I said, oh yeah, I can do that. And went in and, and in that context, taught meditation to these guys. And it was great. I love teaching in prison. The guys are, you know, the Buddha once said, practice, you know, do your meditation, whatever's your spiritual practice. He said, do it like your hair is on fire. <laughs> right. And these guys, he said, do it like, do it like someone has just dumped a bunch of poisonous snakes in your lap. Mm-hmm. Right. And these guys, they have that sense of the urgency of the matter. You know, for them, it's not Oh, okay. This weekend I'll take the, 
the meditation workshop and next weekend I'll take the, you know, the, the macrame workshop or something, you know, they know, no, this is, this is really important. In a previous book of mine, this is my sixth book. And, and in a previous book of mine, I tell the story about one of our guys who got sent to, into segregation, what they call, which is solitary confinement for six months. Yeah. And they actually moved him to another prison where they could put him in a, in a cell just above the boiler room. So it was like 90 something degrees day and night. I mean, it was horrible, brutal. <clears throat> and, you know, when he came back six months later, he told me, well, it was, it was really tough at first, but I figured, okay, it's hot. Take off my clothes. There's nothing to do. I'll make this a meditation retreat. So basically, you know, nothing going on on the outside. I'll go inside. So basically he meditated for six months and boy, when he came back, you know, that, that picture that you held up from the, the Blake chapter of the, the guy, the radiant guy, that's what, that's what, what this fellow looked like after six months on, on meditation retreat. So yeah, I love teaching and I still do that. I'm, you know, I'm 3000 miles away, but when I'm on the East coast, I, I visit there and, and also I send video messages. So I'm still in touch with those guys. Yeah, I'd be curious to know what his integration was like, you know, to be in that type of confinement and not having a ton of stimulation and just the reintegration of coming back in, you know, after going within, you know, for such a long period of time. Yeah, well, I've, you know, I've dealt with that myself. I've been on meditation retreats for for months at a time. And, you know, the, the reintegration, you, you have to take it easy a little bit. You know, they used to tell us, you know, don't go to the disco the first night. Right. Yep, exactly. Now, in working with people in prison, and we were talking about freedom a little bit earlier, you know, how long did you work with them? And were you able to see transformations of the way that they perceived, you know, being there? And were they able to find more freedom within themselves after they learned meditation? Yeah, I started going into Northern State Prison in 2005. And is that right? 2005? Yeah, I believe so. And was going every Thursday night until 2010 when, well, well what happened was a few years earlier, my, my first wife had passed. And uh, after a few years, I met the lovely woman I'm married to now. I bet met both of my wives on meditation retreats, by the <laughs> way, which I recommend way better than single spars. Yeah. And so after three years of cross-country roaming, I, I retired from my teaching job. I sold my house in New Jersey and, and I moved out here. But I still go to back east. I've still got family and, and friends and, and, and students, meditation students there in the Northeast. So we still go back several times a year. And before COVID, I would go and every time I was there, I'd make sure to to go in on a Thursday night because they still meet without me then. And the, you know, the more senior students help teach the, the, you know, the newer students, which is great. That's, that's what's supposed to happen. A good teacher is supposed to make himself obsolete. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So them learning the meditation you found allowed them a little more freedom within themselves. To oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the transformation was so dramatic. You know, the mo the one, there's a wonderful fellow, this is Officer Mercado, and he's the, he's the officer who works at the door of the, the, the chapel where we meet, which is really just the, kind of like a cinder block bunker with a great big loudspeaker right over the, the middle of it. So we'd be in the middle of the meditation and these announcements come, 
attention all areas, attention all units, Spanish choir out to the gym, which is great, which is great because the guys learn, oh, doesn't matter what's going on. You don't have to be distracted, but you don't have to buy into it. You don't have to block it out. Whatever's going on, just be with it, mm -hmm. which is really the key to meditation that you know, people think, oh, you have to control your thoughts and clear your mind and calm your emotions. Now, that, that, that's an endless task. No one can do that. That's self-defeating. Any effort to create a non-agitated state of mind is itself a form of agitation. Creates more agitation. Right? Yeah. You wind up chasing your tail. So what I was, a, what I was fortunate enough to learn early on from my teachers and what I passed on to my guys in prison and my students in school and, you know, through my books. And also, by the way, I lead meditation via Zoom three times a week, free, open to everyone. Anyone who'd like to, to join, just come to my website, deanslider.com, and they'll, they can get the spelling of that from you. Yeah. Because the spelling's tricky. It's S-L-U-Y-T-E-R.com. So what they learned was, yeah, you can just be there, the speakers blaring, whatever. And so Officer Mercado, who's this wonderful, he's this, you know, guy, he's got a, he's got, you know, several black belts and, and, and just a gentle, sweet soul. And he, you know, he was there at the lobby of the, of the, the chapel checking everyone in. And after a couple of years of this, I realized, oh, he's hearing everything too. Mm -hmm. He's hearing everything I'm saying. He's hearing me guide the meditation. And he actually came to me and he said, you know, you're really giving these guys something worthwhile. Mm -hmm. He said, he said like that one, that one, that guy was just like the most, you know, the angriest gangbanger in this place. He's completely transformed. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So yeah. cool. I, I, I'm, I've, I'm very lucky in my life that I yeah. get to do this. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, before we kind of sum this up, in, in your book here, I know you've highlighted 22? 22 people. Is there one in particular that really is your favorite or was another kind of mind-blowing, mm. you know, revelation when you went back to some of the readings of any of these authors? Oh, you know, boy, this is like like choosing which of my five grand grandsons is my favorite. You know, I mean, writing after 30 some years of teaching Macbeth to be able to write the Macbeth chapter and, and squee, you know, kind of tease out what's going on there with the three witches and what's going on with double, double toil and trial, all of that. I mean, that, that's tremendous fun. And, and Moby Dick, which I had never read, actually. I, I, I spent 33 years faking it, telling my students how great Moby Dick was, and I had never read it. So I finally had, had to read it. And I start the chapter by confessing that and, and, you know, discovering that, oh, turns out Moby Dick is as great as, as I've been telling people and, and greater and actually weirder and funnier. Moby Dick is hilarious. But man, if I had to choose one, probably Emily Dickinson, mm -hmm. you know, here's this woman who outwardly basically had, had, did not have a life. She was like a monk. She tended her garden. She took walks in the fields with her, her dog till her dog died and baked, you know, cookies for the local kids. 
And, and that was it, lived in her parents' house until, until she died. And unbeknownst even to her family, was sitting in her upstairs in her second floor bedroom, writing these poems and left behind 1800 and something poems that not all of them, but a whole lot of them just knock the ball out of the park. You know, writing things like, not knowing when the dawn will come, I open every door. Right? Can you hear that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> not knowing when the dawn will come, I open every door. Well, that's how you meditate. That's, that's how you, that's how you, you live a, a, you know, a life in the light. It's interesting, not knowing when, but you, opening every door means not just when, but where, every direction, being, leaving yourself wide open, omnidirectionally wide open. I used to study with these lamas in the Tibetan, a Tibetan tradition called Dzogchen. And in Dzogchen meditation, you, you don't close your eyes. You just sit with your eyes wide open and your mouth hanging open and you, you kind of like look like like an electrified bird on a wire or something and your and the other teachers say your pores wide open everything 360 degrees wide open because what are you blocking out all of this is it all these waves are the ocean why would you close to any of them right <laughs> well this was so much fun i'm so glad that we had a chance to talk and to have you on the podcast you know opened my eyes and it was a lot of fun to to read this and look at things much differently and that's also what i hope our listeners get out of this so you talked about your free meditations can you also just let our listeners know where else what what else you're doing if you are teaching any meditation retreats or anything like that and where they can find your book yeah, I just did. I, I haven't been traveling as much as I used to just because things are still, you know, everyone's a little bit unsure about reopening live events after COVID. But I, I, I do live events basically when I'm invited. I, I just did a thing out in New Hampshire and, and, and Connecticut, just did a, a day long retreat here in Santa Monica. And yeah, Zoom meditation free, open to everyone usually three times a week. And I've got information about my books. I've got videos. I have a, you, you can link there to my YouTube channel where I have a lot of guided meditations archived. So if you're the time, the Zoom times don't work out for you, you can just Look at the, the videos. And the main thing, <clears throat> I just have so many people that come to me, just had a new person about two weeks ago join the, the Zoom classes. And this is a guy who's been trying to meditate for years. And right there, there's the, there's the key word, trying to meditate, yeah. right? And, and again, you know, just thanks to my own wonderful teachers, I've gotten very good at just, you know, yanking that rug of effort out from under people so that ah, they just kind of go into free fall. So yeah, I, I invite everyone to join. Great. Well, thank you so much. And I'd like to thank all of you for listening. We will put those links in the show notes. And again, the book, The Dharma's Bombs Guide to Western Literature. There it is by Dean Slider. All right. Take care, everyone. And I will bring you another amazing guest next Monday. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the Path 11 podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Path 11 TV.
Visit Pavel11TV.com to start a seven-day free trial and start streaming over 100 hours of exclusive video content on consciousness, healing, and life after death. That's Pavel11TV.com. And be sure to use coupon code PODCAST30 to take 30% off your annual membership. Start satisfying your spiritual curiosity with a membership to Path 11 TV today. Bye for now.